Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a crowd podcast. We didn't start the fire. The only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. <laughs> Hemingway, Eichmann, Stranger in a Strange Land, Dylan, Berlin, Bay of Pigs Invasion, Lawrence of Arabia, British Beatlemania. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hello and welcome back to episode 89 of We Didn't Start the Fire. Listeners, this is actually the second part of our conversation about British Beatlemania with Mark, so make sure you go back and listen to the... First one, if you haven't already, because you don't want to miss a beat. Got to do it in the right order, Katie. Number one and then number two here. We think this one was just as much fun as the last one. We could have talked to Mark for hours about this, so let's crack on and hear some more of his wise words. (laughs) If we want to get a sense now, Mark, of what Beatlemania was like in the moment... Is it the opening scenes of Hard Day's Night that we should go to when we see the Beatles running down the street, absolutely pursued by all these girls, and there's a bit where it pulls, stacks it, and falls over and then gets up and runs off, and then he's hiding behind a newspaper. It's just total mayhem. I mean, that's fiction, but it's based on facts. They, they very seldom had to run down streets like that, but it makes a great start to the film. It's as good as anything. I mean, Hard Day's Night is, is merely a fictional encapsulation of what was really happening, written by a man who went on tour and observed things. So it's it's not that far from reality and apart from anything else just a wonderful brilliant film yeah it's so, got all their banter down as well and did yeah. they improvise in the film or was it scripted very accurately to how they express themselves it was 99% scripted but written by a Liverpudlian who who understood the cadences of their speech and had hung around with them to get their personalities mm. so fiction but very much based on reality and that that is a great thing to see as is any kind of you know when they used to arrive at London airport mm. the scenes at the airport with all the kids you know wishing them well and please come back soon and welcoming them home when they return as the heroes and just wonderful scenes from a different from now a, a more innocent era yeah. I mean there's no viewing platforms at Heathrow anymore people no. don't come down steps at aeroplanes anymore not unless you you fail to get to the port <laughs> you know and then, <laughs> then you get annoyed because you've got to get on that bus you know but you know it, it was a different world and um, until a few years ago I used to think that the Beatles were the start of modern times but I think the internet has created a new modern times yeah. and the Beatles are now it's now some other time mm. yeah Let's talk about the Beatles in America. Yeah. Did, did they have the same kind of trajectory there, or they probably started at a higher level, I would imagine? Like, when were they on Ed Sullivan? Three times in February 1964. So, essentially, America was quite an insular place in that, although the population was drawn from all over the globe, America fed itself 
with its own music and films and television and so on and didn't often bring in stuff from outside uh, or at least not not for any lasting impact there would be the occasional Stranger on the Shore by Acker Bilk was number one in America <laughs> and the Tornadoes Telstar was number one in America but neither of them actually made America British mad in fact both of them were instrumentals and that was probably part of it so the Beatles weren't expected to make waves in America, but what they had and what we heard in this country in England was a Britain was a new sound. And once Americans got to hear that sound, there was a chance that they would like it too, because ultimately what the Beatles made was music that people enjoyed. And if their music hadn't been so so attention grabbing, then we wouldn't be talking about them to this day. Uh, I mean, everything else that went with them is was spectacularly good, but really it came down to the music. It was people heard them before they saw them, and then they saw them and they liked the looks, and then they heard them speak and liked the way they spoke, and so it dominoed like that. A bit like Britain, America wasn't thinking, huh, our scene is a little bit staid over here. What we need <laughs> yeah. is an injection of British personality. But when they heard the Beatles, they fell in love with them too. And they had the extra appeal of the fact that the Beatles were foreign. And it was like, well, these guys are from England and England had never been considered very hip. Their view was, we all spoke terribly, terribly like that. You know, oh, jolly what, everything's wonderful. <laughs> and suddenly the, the Beatles, don't, they don't speak like that. They speak, If anything, they pronounce words in an American way because it was the North of England way. Yeah, those hard they, R's. They would say bath instead of bath, Yeah, you know, and last instead of last and so on. And that, that wasn't, that was okay for American ears. So they went... Brian Epstein booked them to go on the Ed Sullivan show in February 64 in November 63 and between the two events the booking and the appearance three months I Want to Hold Your Hand came out in America and went to number one super fast three weeks I think about six other records had ever got to number one that quickly and the American record industry just went what <laughs> like that and just what else is there from England and suddenly England gets hoovered up and sucked into the American culture. The British invasion. The British invasion begins with the Beatles. Mm. Um, never thought to. And, and the American media and the American, you talk, You asked me about British and the Fleet Street. Over here, we the British Fleet Street were very welcoming of the Beatles and found them engaging and funny and so on. But in America, the Beatles had to win them over and there was a core adult population in America that didn't want the Beatles mm. and resisted them very firmly and but it was the teenage wave and particularly girls much more girl bias in America with the Beatles mm. still a lot of boys did like them and that they, they kickstart the guitar the rock band thing in America but really American concerts were overwhelmingly girls and younger Younger there than in the UK. Mm. So you, a lot of preteens were at Beatles shows. We in develop faster in America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that the Beatles, uh, they never actually said anything critical of, of, the, of the constitution of their audiences. But I think in America, they were probably a little bit surprised to be playing to seven, eight, nine year olds. <laughs> yeah as well as 12, 13, 14 year olds. Um, but whereas in Britain, the teenage girls would be more 14, 15, 16. And in the cavern, it had been more 15, 16, 17. Mark, what do you think about the fact that Billy makes a point of citing British Beatlemania? What do you think he's after there? 
I think he's. I think what he's talking about is the. Well, there's two things. First of all, there's the fact that um, Americans first discovered Beatlemania by reading about it in the news pages of their newspapers, and from seeing Walter Cronkite on CBS News oh. with coverage of Beatlemania. So when the Beatles first penetrate America nationally through television and through the media, it's because of the scenes outside theatres and so on, rather than for the music. Right. Uh, it's this crazy thing is happening. All these these teenagers are going wild for these long-haired guys. They weren't even looking at the music. They mm. were just looking at as a news story. So Beatlemania, as a word, first is heard in America as a British thing. Right. But also, I think Billy might be referring to the fact that it was so unusual that anything revolutionary would come out of the United Kingdom when it came to entertainment. I mean, we had our own acts and everything, but they weren't really penetrating America. Uh, but suddenly, this be when the Beatles came, they were so obviously not American. And that, I think, was a key part of their appeal. And we didn't really talk about yet, but... There's no question in the minds of many that their interest in the Beatles went hand in hand with their grieving for President Kennedy. That Kennedy was assassinated in late November 63 and it threw the country into this gloomy, dark, introspective period of what have we done and what is our society. And then the Beatles come in from somewhere else. Ah from beyond these shores and are different and exciting and original. And, and they're a, a new generation, a younger generation. They bring hope and the idea of possibility. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think the fact that it came from outside the U.S. is absolutely crucial oh. to the U.S. experience. I think it allowed, it allowed them to, to just bring it in, welcome it. Yeah. in a way that perhaps, perhaps couldn't have done had they, had they been from Idaho. It's as amazing the speed of it in the States, Mark, as it is in the UK. So if that Ed Sullivan shows in February, by April that year, all five of the top five singles are by the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah, well, there was there was there was kind of um, because Beatles records had been issued in America in '63 and not done very well. There was kind of a dam was building. So once the the dam burst in January, February '64, then so well, have you got anything by the Beatles? Well, we've got this one. And it came out a few months ago. I'll, I'll take it. And they were all selling. Everything that had been sold was selling now, mm. and record companies were releasing them fast because in America, particularly. The mentality of the corporate corporate level was, let's sell as much as we can, as fast as we can, because this is a fad. Mm -hmm. Now, we know the Beatles as a, as a band that changed our culture in the best possible way and made the most brilliant music that is still sounding so great. But in the moment, back 60 years ago, it was reckoned to be a fad and it, would, it was a bubble that would burst at any moment. And in America, where they had a lot of fads like the hula hoop or you know, the twist or whatever, then the Beatles were another one of those. And it was make as much money as quick as you can. And it was a great surprise that the Beatles actually had any kind of sustained career over there. It was only as it unfolded that people thought, huh, they haven't gone away yet. <laughs> and you can see that at the start, can't you? Because Ed Sullivan, when you watch the footage of that first appearance, he's quite sniffy about them. You can tell that he doesn't particularly like the way that his, his audience is behaving. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, I mean, it wasn't Ed's generation, um, but Ed was open-minded to talent. And, was he? and he was a great man for talent. 
And I think he did. I mean, he he always made a point of saying what darn fine boys they were. Okay. And uh, Elvis Presley, had, you know, sent a telegram of welcome and good luck, boys, and all of that. And no, I think he he realised as a newspaper man that he had the hottest the hottest act it. ever. Yeah. And he'd kind of been talked into taking them, but ultimately he had booked them, and that was he used his own instinct and booked them three times, which was very smart move. So they weren't just on the show once and then they're on somebody else's show. They were on his show three times. He had them exclusively for that US TV season, which ran through the end of September 64. The Beatles are why the name Ed Sullivan has not gone away. In America, it is the thing. It was it was the changing moment, wasn't it? I mean, it was just yes. everything. It's before Ed Sullivan and there's after Ed I'm Sullivan. I'm thinking about this because I was born in 1962. I was growing up in Northern Virginia. Uh, my sister and my two brothers were already in their teens. They were ripe for the pickin' when Ed featured the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. And that is why my siblings were totally swept up in Beatlemania and why I was privileged to hear them in my uncomprehending way as a tyke. <laughs> and and then I mean there was barely a show for a while where Ed didn't have a British pop group you know mm. I mean the Dave Clark Five got their entree into America because of the Beatles uh, and they were on the show I think more than any other Jerry and the Pacemakers were on and and um, well they were all on everybody was on the Ed Sullivan show it became the place to watch the latest pop group right whereas before the Beatles it was there wasn't much of that and it was a variety show so there would be sure. jug jugglers and acrobats and ventriloquists yeah and magicians magicians yeah, dance yeah. groups. Who were the Beatles' pop peers at the time? Because uh, there were others that were big then. I'm thinking of Scylla, Petula Clark, Beach Boys in America. And uh, I, I want to get a sense of, did the Fab Four interact and hobnob, socialize, create with these other artists? Yeah. When they first broke through in the UK, they didn't really have any peers. They they were fresh and different and others followed behind them and were always behind them. And they were always the royalty in that in any social situation. Yeah. Um, but but from 64 in particular, as the scene is beginning to develop and the Stones are coming up and the Kinks have their first big hit and the Yardbirds are there and Scylla Black and, you know, everybody is, is suddenly now jostling for position they're all doing these package shows and then the nightclubs begin to open up for these people the ad lib club and the scotch of st james and these places that became hip for a while where they would hang out at night together and um because i love that whole idea of, yeah. of the whole social scene of yes. all of all of those artists it just that's if i went back in time that's where we'd go yeah yeah that's where i'd want to be hanging out yeah. with tom here yeah right you go to the ad lib club or yeah. the scotch or, or not the, a million or the miles today, yeah. yeah no no exactly the, yeah, the bag of nails in kingley street and yeah london became the place then and if you wanted to make it you had to be based in london uh, but most people would be out playing every night i mean there were very few acts who weren't permanently on the road mm. so quite often you would be you'd, you'd be playing until 10 10 30 at night you'd run out of the theater you'd stop and get some greasy food in Watford Gap on the way back from mm. wherever you were traveling you'd get back to London around midnight or one o'clock in the morning and then you'd go to the club so there was a lot of turnover of people in these clubs because you might see um i don't know ray davis will be in there on a tuesday you go come in tomorrow night ray no we're in newcastle tomorrow night <laughs> you know um and we're not back in london until sunday you know so you never quite knew who was going to be there 
And and this incredible scene did evolve in London very quickly in 64, 5, 6, 7, 8, where there were these hip clubs to go. And members of the public could get in as well, but there would be all these stars in there. Mm. There wasn't really the separation of us and them quite so much. It was much greater access to famous people in those days than there is now. As Tom's dad can attest, dancing as with Julie Christie. Very much so, yeah, yeah. Where did he dance with Julie Christie? It was at a party. And his tactics, um, I think he, he, his recollections, he went into this party and most of the rooms were empty apart from one room which was absolutely heaving and there were concentric rings around someone he at that stage hadn't identified, which turned out to be uh, 1966 Julie Christie. Oh. And yeah, he waited for his moment and asked for a dance and got a whole dance out of Julie Christie. Do you know and what kind of a dance it was? No, my dad had quite a clumsy one. Um, <laughs> he would have been wise to let Julie lead it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, the other thing about that period of time is it's the first time when you've got people able to dance solo. Yeah. Because, and the twist ushered that in. Until yes. then, you always had to have a man and a woman together. And they would, you know, you'd have to do the formation dance. You'd have to have learned the steps in advance and you have to you'd know what to do. But the twist introduced the idea of people just getting up and moving around. Yeah. Uh, and we had a Chubby Checker episode on this show, and we also mm. had a Hula Hoop episode on this show. So, like, lo- lots of hip twiggling and wriggling going on on the dance floor for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, by 64-5, there was that great new divide of young people would know how to do this dance, but your parents' generation had yeah. no bloody idea. Yeah. And I remember being at the occasional wedding or something when I was growing up, and I'd suddenly see my dad on the dance floor trying to move like a teenager <laughs> kind of thing. It was so embarrassing. Yeah. 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 Another thing that astonishes me is let's say, Katie, you and I were to find ourselves in one of those bands and we're doing that incessant touring, we're flying around. I wouldn't have time for anything else. Yeah. But during this whole period, the songwriting part of the Beatles is accelerating to the extent that not only are they releasing pretty much two albums a year, but they're releasing singles that they don't even need to put on the albums. They've got so many songs. Yeah, they're typically 30 tracks a year will be coming out. extraordinary. Yeah, Yeah, fantastic output. And you alluded earlier to the progression of the Beatles. I mean, another key part of who they were was that they never wanted to do the same thing twice. It's so easy when you're creating music and suddenly you find maybe unexpectedly that what you've done is actually successful, that people out there on the street actually want to go into a record shop and buy it, put over their real hard-earned money and buy your music. And the temptation then when you're making the follow-up is to make it in the vogue of the previous one because you know that the public liked that, they wanted it. That's the sound that they like, that's the one they identify with you. And the Beatles always just said, well, we, we've done that. We're going to do something else now. Which is brave. It's very brave. I mean, we look at their career now from the point of view of history. Yeah. And it is this beautiful story of progression. But every time as an artist, when you do something that you haven't done before, you run the risk of your public not liking it. And, uh, you know, when they made Sgt. Pepper, there was no certainty that people were going to go, that's a great album, we really got to buy that. It could have been, oh, what's that? Why aren't they doing She Loves You, yeah, 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 anymore? Or Help or Ticket to Ride or whatever. So, um, but they would, they just did it because it was what they wanted to do. And every time they did what they wanted to do, people went, yeah, actually, yeah, I want to do that as well. And at this point, how is the writing process working? Is this the point where we can still see Paul and John sitting opposite each other, mirroring each other because we've got a left-hander and a right-hander, those beautiful images of them staring into each other's eyes? Yeah. 
Is that this period or are they starting to work alone? That it was always all things. So although that word that that the way you've described it does indicate certain songs of theirs to begin with, particularly the sixty-three songs like From Me to You, She Loves You and I Wanna Hold Your Hand, they were very much written, the two of them together, to the point where you can't really tell whether it's a John song or a Paul song because it's a kind of John Paul song. Yeah. Or it's a Paul <laughs> John song. It's kind of no easily distinguishing marks, whereas most of the other Beatles songs, you can tell John wrote most of this, Paul wrote most of this. But even still, before they went into a session or a group of sessions, they knew they were going to be recording a new album. Paul would go to John's house in Weybridge or John would come to Paul's house in St. John's Wood and they would have sessions where they would help finish off or refine or, okay, I've got the first verse, but I'm not quite sure where it goes. What's the chorus of this? I've got the start, but I haven't got where it goes. And then they would actually fashion it together. So those songs... They're more 70, 30s, 60, 40s, 55, 45, 75, 25 collaborations. Whereas what you were describing when they're sitting facing each other with their guitars, they're the true 50-50s. And there are fewer of those. Another great thing about the Beatles is they had no hard and fast formula. Whatever worked for the song was the way it would work. They always resisted pigeonholes. They always resisted established ways of doing things. They always subverted the rules in everything they did. It was their natural inquisitiveness to say, well, what's it, what it like if we do that? You know, well, or in Abbey Road Studios, it would be like a, an EQ switch on the desk of pop or classical. And it's like, well, you know, this is a pop session, so you put it to that setting. And say, so, well, well, let's do it. The other setting then, you know, or the or the engineer would say, well, we, I'm not allowed to put it up beyond there because, you know, it might damage the equipment or whatever. We'll do it. Just do it and we'll find out what happens. And they had that natural inquisitiveness that enabled them to pursue their excellence in or their artistic ideas in, in in any new direction that they liked no rule was going to hold them in this is an advertisement from better help therapy online hello fire listeners it's tom here i hope you're enjoying the series i wanted to tell you about better help We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com slash WDSTF. Eat stress-free this spring with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen, each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon and it was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Talk about their group dynamics, the alliances, how they shored each other up throughout all of this crazy time, or perhaps they stopped shoring each other up. How did it all work? A major thing about the Beatles that never really gets considered is what incredibly great friends they were of one another. Um, and when you, you know, you know your rock history, you know how how very few bands there have ever been where everybody is actually a friend. Yeah. Often there are deadly enemies within the same band <laughs> and they might meet in the studio or on stage and they might loathe one another, but they go out there and do the gig or do the session or whatever it might be. Yeah. The Beatles were friends. They were friends. John, Paul and George were the colonel of that group because they had been friends from 57, 58. And in fact, Paul knew George back to 54 from school. Right. So they had that incredible strength of common purpose and common background. They knew one another's parents or guardians or aunts and uncles and neighbours and they'd been at parties and they, they knew their families and they just knew everything about one another. They knew their backgrounds and they knew their strengths and weaknesses and all of that. So they were incredibly tight. Pete was never one of them. But when they got Ringo in the Beatles, they kind of opened up, let him in, and then closed the doors again right. behind him. It took him a little bit of time to find his place, but then they became this very solid four who had their own shorthand way of speaking and communicating. They could give each other a look and they would know what it meant, just like very close mates. Because you can kind of basically. see that in that the Beatle documentary that came out recently, the Peter Jackson Get Back yeah. three-parter. Mm. As I recall, it is. Nearly eight hours. Uh, yeah. yeah. And you can see, even though it's a fractious time for them and they're coming to the end of their Beatles era, they still have this structural integrity. They still have links of empathy with each other. It was difficult, though, I would imagine, because there was not a sense that a band was an organism the way there is today where it's not unheard of for Metallica to hire a group therapist for the band to help them get over their issues. How did they cope with the daily demands and the scrutiny? I understand that they got into transcendental meditation. They visited the Maharishi in India. George Harrison got into Hare Krishna. Like, Were there these other spiritual things that helped them or uh, recreational drugs that helped them kind of cope 
with all of this stress? Those were just things that I mean, they were just growing up and finding out. They were they were very interested in everything, so yeah. they had an open mind to new ideas, and they had the enthusiasms of anyone who's who's got a new hobby. So right. they they would dive deeply into something together. They often did things together. If some and that would extend to clothes. If someone turned up in a particularly interesting shirt, we'd say, "Where'd you get that shirt?" They'll order three more. It wasn't. <laughs> so, it wasn't so they would all look alike all the time. That would have been a bit strange. But it was just because they enjoyed one another's taste, mm. and they were open to the fact that each of them was inquisitive individually, and would come in with something. Oh, I heard this record. Oh, what record's that? Oh, oh, great. And and go and get me that record. So they they were all open and all shared. They kept themselves in balance, though. They had no psychiatrists or anything like that. Yeah. They they Liverpool guys, and they were all born during the war, and they all grew up with not very much, and they weren't expecting very much either. And one of the surprises that people have watching that Get Back series is, look, you know, they kind of made their own tea, or they would <laughs> they would fetch this or fetch that. We're, we're familiar now, decades later, with stars demanding this and demanding that, but they would sit on the floor yeah. because British boys did sit on the floor. You'd sit on the floor from when you first go to school at the age of four or five. Sitting on the floor is not in any way so, so when I'm a star now, I don't sit on the floor. Of course, mm -hmm. of course you can sit on the floor if you want to sit on the floor. And, and just that's how it was. One of the great things about the Beatles was together with the friendship was that they were all experiencing this extraordinary situation together. Yeah. Had it been a solo act like Elvis, nobody else but Elvis knew what act that actually felt like to be Elvis. But in the Beatles, they there were four of them and John knew exactly what Paul was going through and Paul knew exactly what George was going through and so on. Another interesting thing was the way that they dealt with it was um they considered themselves Beatles only when they were together doing collective things, going somewhere like to a TV studio to do a show or going to do a tour or a gig or maybe going to the studio. Then they would be the Beatles. But outside of that, when they're at home or when they're out for an evening with you know whoever, whatever they were doing, then they didn't consider themselves Beatles. They're just John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George mm. Harrison, or Richie Starkey. Mm. And that is a, a key integral element into understanding why they were able to maintain their sanity as much as they did, mm. because they actually removed themselves from the Beatles as much as they possibly could, so that it were only, you know, the, the screaming thing was only what happened when they put on those clothes and stood on that wooden stage over there. Mm. Otherwise, when they're at home, they're single guys. There's something about the four as well, isn't there? There's something about the four, and I don't know whether there, it, it just works as a rock band or whether I'm thinking it works as a rock band because of the Beatles. But five, like the Rolling Stones, can sometimes feel too many, and three's a different dynamic. There's something about the fact there's four of them. Yeah, yeah. You would be amazed at how much attention was paid to the fact that they had electric guitars, you know, because it's like... The electric guitar had been around a long time, but it was you would see some in a jazz band occasionally. There might be some jazzer there playing some some nice riffs or melodies. <laughs> but uh, but three guys with guitars on stage, the band as rock band as we would always know it, basically punks and all of that. It, it's that look. 
it began with the Beatles. They didn't actually begin it, but they're the popularizers of it. And so... Was it seen as like crazy high tech stuff? Yes. Yes, it was. Oh, okay. It, like it, futuristic. Yes, yes. Where would they be without amplifiers and all of that? It's just like they're, <laughs> they're plugged in. It's this whole new thing. You know, oh. the, these guys, they plug their guitars into that box over there and it, ma- it makes it loud. Yeah. But no one knew what electric guitars were. Not the mass population. I'd never really seen an electric guitar okay. before or heard one and didn't know what an amplifier was and all these these accessories that are just part and parcel of life now like pedal the pedals and yeah, yeah. or they they didn't really have pedals okay. they didn't really have and they would just plug the plug into the vox amp and go yeah but they didn't really have the tone controls or anything like that that are absolutely standard now and was it always john paul george ringo because when we say name the beatles you go your brain goes john paul george ringo in that yeah. order yeah yeah. Was it always that in the height of the main? The first time I found evidence of that was actually uh, a man in Liverpool called Bob Wooler, who was DJ at many of the shows they did, but also used to actually act as go-between between the promoter and the the talent on stage. He would actually, you know, marshal the night and uh, more than just play records. And he would design posters and things and advertisements, and he came up with that order. Initially, actually, John Paul, George and Pete... But John Paul, George and Ringo is actually a vital chain. It was explained to me, uh, I have this on the best of authority, by Neil Aspinall, who was the Beatles' main assistant from 1961 through to 2007 or 2008. Hmm. And he explained to me that it's actually the chain. John started this whole thing. He brought in Paul. Paul brought in George. Um, and Ring and George brought in Ringo. I mean, they all brought Ringo in, but George was the prime motivator for bringing Ringo in. So his name is Fourth. So it, it does trip off the tongue. It's the right order. Any other way doesn't quite work. But it's also a psychological balance that existed between them where John has, I wouldn't quite say has his best relationship with Paul, but he has a unique relationship with Paul that he doesn't have with the other two. Paul was closer to George than he was to Ringo. And Ringo, looking up from the fourth place, was definitely closer to George, who had brought him in, than he was to Paul or to John uh, because he felt he owed George. So that is actually a, a crucial psychological order. If you understand that, that there is a link there, a chain link between those four names in that order, then it helps you understand the psyche of the band. However, they were all friends with one another very strongly, and John and George had an incredibly close bond through most of the 60s, and John and Ringo were very, very close all the way through to John's death. So um, in a sense, they all kind of had a great best relationship with Ringo because it was easier somehow yeah he was a, a necessary foil yeah in a way he was sort of the donkey in with the thoroughbred horses although maybe that's doing a disservice to the donkey um I, it occurs to me that saying talking about the order of saying the beatles names is almost like a catholic catechism the yeah. father and the son and the holy ghost and you yeah. kind of understand the relationship and the components at the same time yes mark the beatles were the first and or the biggest in so many areas including merchandise they were kind of the ground zero of commercial exploitation from mop-top wigs to feature films. Let's talk about this. There's probably bobblehead dolls and all manner of clothes that you could buy. Did they control this merchandise or benefit from it? 
They did benefit from it, but not as much as they would have done in later years when the industry, the merchandising industry became more established and contracts became more firmly fixed in the artist's uh, favour. Mm. There there had been merchandising of, of pop music before the Beatles. You could buy the Tommy Steele guitar could you? back in about 1957 or thereabouts. <laughs> I mean, Tommy Steele wasn't hit for very long in the pop world, but you could buy his guitar. And there were Elvis Presley items, particularly in America. That, that market... That for, for kind of tat, which is essentially what it was. I mean, not all items were tat, but most of them were, um, was principally in the United States. Right. So there was no real understanding of it over here. During 1963, as it evolved, then the, Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, began to get more and more offers or expressions of interest. Can we put their name on this tea tray? Can we put this name on the tea towel? Yeah. That kind of thing. And um, he turned it all over to his lawyer, David, whose name was David Jacobs, not the BBC DJ David Jacobs, but a lawyer called David Jacobs, uh, who had no understanding of the market and um, got the Beatles in basically for 10%. Oh, ouch. Um, it got renegotiated, which never really gets mentioned. Um, it got renegotiated to 45%, middle of 64 but on the other hand, they had plenty of money. Uh, and the problem in those days was always how to how to actually get hold of your money because it, the, the taxation rates were so incredibly high that even had the Beatles been making more on merchandise, it would have probably just gone to the British government anyway. So the top rate of tax was, what, 90%? 91.25% wow. uh, at were, that time. They were pretty uh, much subsidising Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, that was part of the reason why they, were, uh, they got the MBEs because of their, <laughs> their, their value. To the to British exports oh was so God. was so tremendous, so there was merchandising, yeah, and most of it was tat. But um, somebody has to come first and show others who follow a better way of doing it. Yeah, and you don't necessarily, as the first in, get the best deal because there, there's no precedent and you don't quite know where to set it. Yeah, there's gold in them our hills. A friend of mine's father was a little bit of a goer back in the, the 60s. He worked in a hotel where the Beatles happened to stay in New York City, and he very cannily light-fingered the sheets in the <laughs> Beatles' rooms, nice. cut them up into small little squares, stapled them onto cards, and identified whether it was George, John, Ringo, or Paul's sheets. I'll yes. say that very carefully. And I have <gasps> one of Paul's sheet squares in my possession. <laughs> right. So wow. uh, apparently it's authenticated. I don't know by whom. The chambermaid, perhaps. But uh, I thought that was quite a good little score. Yeah. I mean, when the Beatles went to America, they met a kind of rampant commercialism that they simply <laughs> had never, never been known to them before. Yeah. Something that didn't exist in their experience in the UK. And that included hoteliers cutting up their bedsheets. And it happened in many cities around the US, particularly on that first visit in 1964. But I'm not too sure that they particularly sold very well as items. Sometimes they had a kind of charitable element, you know, we would donate a percentage of the proceeds to so-and-so. But I'm not actually sure that they sold that well. But it was done. It was done in cities all all across the United States. That's funny. I didn't realize it was a thing. Yeah, there, there, anything the Beatles had touched was there was you know, and if if you were a person who came out of their room, or had you know you'd been in a hotel and you'd interviewed the Beatles if you were a journalist or something like that, then you would be the object of Beatlemania for a minute or two, okay. and your clothes would be grabbed at, and some souvenir might be snipped off some part of your apparel oh my gosh. because you'd been with them, and it was like Beatlemania by removing 
move. But um, that's how incredible those times were and no precedent for it and nothing really since either. No. Not on that level. Wow. When we look at the Beatles' trajectory, Mark, where do we think the end of that initial Beatlemania comes? I suppose the conventional answer would be when they give up touring in 1966 and they focus merely on expressing themselves artistically, which they have been doing already, but whilst also going out on the road, that once they take the road away from it, which was a very brave move in itself, what you do is when you're performing artists is you perform you go out there that's really where you earn your money out on the road and uh, to stop that element of their career was a very interesting thing for them to do so conventionally one would say well because the screaming audiences aren't there anymore then that era of Beatlemania comes to an end but I'm not too sure that it actually did it just changed slightly because they weren't in stadiums so the kids didn't go to stadiums to scream at them but they would still scream at them outside recording studios or houses or if not scream because that is this gets a bit boring the screaming it's really about attention being paid to them when the Beatles were recording through the night at EMI Studios on Abbey Road in 67, 8, 9, there were always, always people outside the studio, fans waiting for hour upon hour in whatever weather there was to see them, to take their pictures, to get an autograph, to get a word, to just hand them a gift or whatever it might be. And that never let up. And I would say that it hasn't let up to this day. I don't think Beatlemania is actually finished. It just keeps changing shape. And obviously, in we've only got two Beatles left now. They have to. They've had decades now to get used to this. But what a life that must be to actually have that everywhere you go. If people know where you are, indulge me in a counterfactual. How might the Beatles have stayed together into the seventies and beyond, like their old sparring partners, the Rolling Stones? What would have needed to happen to keep peace in the Valley or to keep the collaborative juices flowing? Oh, I think quite simply, they, if they hadn't have had the business differences, it was business differences oh, okay. that really broke them up. It, it wasn't anything else. There were contributing factors, but primarily the Beatles broke up because of business disagreements. Mm. So had those disagreements not been there, had they been uni- united in what their solution was, then they would have probably been fine. Mm. They were already doing things on their own and sure. coming together as a band. So people like to put everything into neat neat little packets and say the Beatles broke up in 1970 and their solo careers begin. But the solo stuff is it's overlapped from 68, I would say. And so I think there's no reason why they couldn't have coexisted. But the the business thing was huge for them. It was everything that they'd ever earned. Basically, they had to safeguard it as best they could. And they couldn't quite agree on how that should be done. We often ask, Mark, at this stage of We Didn't Start the Fire, for the impact or the cultural impact of the person, place or thing we're discussing. We don't need to do that with the Beatles, but I would like to finish by just this this period that we've talked about. So the cultural leap that the Beatles make from the release of the Please Please Me album in March 1963 to Revolver coming out in August 1966. So we're sort of going Love Me Do to Tomorrow Never Knows even now strikes me as the most extraordinary period Mm. in culture to go from where they were to where they did in such a tiny space of time. Yeah, yeah, well, it is. But this is what happens when you've got truly creative people with with no, no hold over what they can think and do. 
They had free session time at EMI, by the way, which is a part of their contract that never really gets mentioned. So they could go in and use it as a workshop. They didn't just have to get in and get out. Maybe if they weren't famous, they would have done. But because they'd sold so many records, they had the freedom of the studio and never had to pay for a moment's session time. But in their heads is where the real progression is taking place because they're so open to influences and they're so absorbing everything else that's going on around them. They're reading the right books, they're seeing the right films, they're going to plays, they're open to experimental ideas. They've got equipment in their own houses and they're putting tapes on backwards and speeding things up and slowing down and they are taking drugs and the combination of all these things together with, I mean, if, if I was doing that, my music might still sound much like it had been before, but because they are doing that, because of those four people, doing that then anything was possible and sure what you've got is the most breathtaking artistic progression and the only caveat to the to what you said and i agree with everything you said 100 percent is that when you compare if you say well you know from please please me to um as you did tomorrow never knows is three years and four months or five months or if you go from from me to you to ticket to ride is only two years that kind of thing the only problem with that is it has the tendency to diminish the earlier song okay well they went from love me do to tomorrow never knows yeah love me do should not be diminished she loves you should not be diminished in their moment they were ear catching no one had sounded made a sound like no human being had made a sound like she loves you when it was first made it was like what it was so exciting so original when if you then say well two years later they did strawberry fields well okay or three years later but she loves you is a revolution in itself Katie, we've both been looking forward to this episode, haven't yes. we, for 88 lyrics of Billy's song, and it hasn't disappointed. We've sat here with massive smiles. Yes. You've written so much about the Beatles. Is there a particular book you would like us to steer listeners towards? I'm writing a trilogy at the moment. Some of the people listening to this will know that I'm writing a three-volume history of the Beatles and that only one volume is out so far <laughs> and that sitting here talking to you is keeping me from Sorry. doing Sorry. <laughs> from volume two. Um, it's okay. I need to get out every once in a while. <laughs> so Tune In is the first of the three. Uh, I would recommend that to those who don't already have it. And I'm working on volume two and it's coming. Yeah, that's all I can say. Hello. This is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. 
Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Katie, I think it's quite obvious, you and I could sit around and talk about the Beatles forever. I think in some terrible world where I were to be stripped of every single cultural item, music, sports, film, theatre, probably wouldn't be theatre to be honest, but you could take everything else away from me. If you left me with the Beatles, I could still survive. Wow. They have uh, all of your nutritional food groups to keep you ticking over. Is that right? I think they do. How about you? Yeah, I think uh, they're just woven in to Rock's rich tapestry. That's just always the snuggly fabric that we uh, cover ourselves with and rely on to cushion ourselves against the more brutal aspects of pop culture. And I think, Katie, they still work. So when I first came with Dad, and you have this choice on car journeys. Do you spend long car journeys listening incessantly to terrible nursery rhymes, which would drive you mad? Or do you try and get your kids into the music that you like? So I've played the boys a lot of different music um, that I've loved. The more esoteric house music from the early 90s was not a big hit in their toddler years and still may not be. But the Beatles is the thing that they love. So when we go on long journeys in the van now, the request they have is Beatles Shuffle. And Beatles Shuffle means go to your iPhone. Load up the Beatles, hit Shuffle. It could be any Beatles song at any point. So the poppy stuff they love and then the psychedelic stuff they like and the sitari, Eastern Promise, George Harrison stuff they like. They'll be just as happy with... Uh, Helter Skelter. With Helter Skelter as a B-side from 1963 like Thank You Girl, which only Beatle completists really care about. It all works for them, which is amazing. Now, clearly they've got me saying this is good, but there's other stuff that I've said is good that doesn't work for them. So there is something magical about the Beatles that even now, deep in the 21st century, works for people. Oh, that's interesting. So, because I was just going to accuse you of doing some North Korean propaganda brainwashing. That has happened in other areas. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one football team, Katie, which they're allowed to support, but that reflects very badly on me. So we shall move that one on. And I was thinking when we were girding our loins to meet Mark and do this whole conversation if I had to choose one Beatles song, Ooh. I know this is really hard, but I think Norwegian Wood Great is choice. the one for me. Yeah. I love it because it's so beautiful, it's tender, but it's also wistful and it's sad and it's talking about vulnerability and failure. It's kind of got the whole human condition in it. So it's soothing and it's also a little bit disturbing at the same time. It's also direct in that the melody is unforgettable, but it's opaque because you don't really know what's going on with this girl and why he's sleeping in the bath. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he's in this girl's apartment, which is already a bit saucy. And then... Did he offend her or, you know, I guess he's trying to get his leg over. It didn't work. Or maybe he put his foot wrong. Body parts weren't ending up where they thought they were going to end up. And yeah, he's ending up in the bath. I've always wondered as well how well you could sleep in a bath. How many hours sleep could you get in a bath? You know, I would just forget the bath and just lie on the bath mat. (laughs) With a towel. If I I was John Lennon. Yeah. How about you? Do you have a, a song that you... It's an almost impossible question for me because yeah. I think it depends on the mood you're in. Yeah. I try and narrow it down to albums and I'll end up like a lot of people in that sort of Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sergeant Pepper, Holy Trinity. And if you take the middle of those and Revolver, there's not a bad tune on Revolver. And Tomorrow Never Knows blows my mind every single time. Yeah. 
because it is so different to anything else that anyone would have heard at that point. It's really a very simple song. It's really, really, it's a couple of variations on, on G, yeah. but it's based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. That wasn't happening with Please Please Me and Love Me Do. No, no, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. And it's almost like, yeah, it's a self-soothing chant. It's a drone. It's a prayer in a way. So hearing it puts you into... A, a different kind of state. Okay, if I'm going to do your cheating method, what I'm going to say is I like all of side two of Abbey Road. Mm, the medley. Yeah, the whole medley. Plus, um, Here Comes the Sun. Oh. And uh, there's another song in there. But anyway, yeah, that whole side two. It's great. It's kind of a concept album without a concept. It is. It is. You can't go wrong with them, Katie. I hope all our listeners enjoyed that as much as we did. If you would like another podcast to listen to, I think we should recommend this week Death of a Rockstar. And this tells the stories of all those superstars that we lost too soon from the world of music. The ones who rocked our stages, shook our stereos and made us wear the clothes that we wear. Um, Katie, I wrote quite a few of these. I really enjoyed doing them. Well, that was obviously pretty sad at times, including the one that I wrote about John Lennon. Oh, so if you want to give it a listen, just search for Death of a Rock Star wherever you get your podcast. And if you guys have any guest ideas or something you'd like to tell us, inside scoop, a little tittle-tattle that we weren't able to cover, or maybe your parents or grandparents knew the characters that we're talking about and you have some secrets to share, you can contact us on email at fire at crowdnetwork.co.uk or on social media. We're at Spread That Fire on Instagram and Twitter. And where are we going next week, Katie? Next week's episode is Ole Miss, which references the race riots that happened in 1962 at the University of Mississippi. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast. And my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. The When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. 
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.